Well, we sang a Christmas carol because it's only 13 weeks to Christmas. <laughs> you know how I know it's only 13 weeks to Christmas? Because it's only 12 weeks to wedding. Yeah, 17th of December is the Saturday before, it's a week before Christmas when our daughter's getting married. My wife told me today or yesterday, 12 weeks from now, yesterday, yesterday was Saturday, 12 weeks from now. So I thought, hmm, it's only 13 weeks till Christmas. So we ought to have a Christmas message. Open your Bible to John chapter 1, verse 14. You may not have thought of John 1.14 as a Christmas Bible verse. We tend to think of the Christmas text as the one that says, uh, uh, you know, Mary was great with child and they're going up to, to Bethlehem and Jesus was born in the inn because there was, or he was born in the manger because there's no room in the inn. And we, and we know all those texts, but this, above all, is a Christmas Bible verse. John 1.14, and the word became flesh. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness of Him and cried out, saying, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me, for He was before me. And of His fullness we have received, and grace for grace... For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. I've called today's message the divine object lesson because of verse 18. No one has seen God at any time, but the Son has declared Him or taught us about Him. And this message from these uh, five verses is going to come in two parts, today and next week. Today we're just going to be, coming, be considering verse 14 because it is such a rich verse and so full of meaning and so important for us to grasp as Christians. One author said this verse, this phrase in fact, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He says this great sentence is the one for which the gospel of John was written. In other words, this is the really important point in this whole great gospel of John. And so I want to make sure we get it today, because this is absolutely important and critical and foundational to our Christianity. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The... What we're going to call this is the incarnation of Christ. And, and I know that's a big word, but it's a big word you need to learn. The word in Greek for flesh or body is karnos. We get the word, it comes into Spanish, I believe, as carne, and we talk about meat, or a carnivore, a meat eater. Flesh, your physical body. The scripture, excuse me, it's the word sarkos in Greek, and it, and it comes into these other words. The Bible says that Jesus took on flesh. And we need to understand about this incarnation of Christ. And so the first thing that we want to do is go back to the beginning of this chapter and review the fact that Jesus is God, the deity of Jesus Christ. Look at chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, 
And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. And without Him, nothing was made that was made. This Word that we are talking about is the second person of the Trinity, commonly referred to as Jesus Christ. If we were to read the whole chapter, we would come down to verse 29, and we would see John, when he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one who I was talking about when I said, After he comes a man who is preferred before me, for he was, or he existed before me. Jesus Christ is divine. We used this illustration a couple of weeks ago to help you uh, perhaps visualize the relationship between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The illustration shows us both distinctness and commonality. You see the section in the middle, which is common. All three persons of the Godhead Share the divine nature. I know that's a terrible theological sentence. I'm not terrible, but a big theological sentence. But frankly, folks, if you're going to speak concisely about the truth of God's word, you need to start to learn some of these terms and add them to your vocabulary. God exists in three persons. They are all equally divine. They are equally God. They all have the ability to create, to call up out of nothing. They all have uh, power beyond compare or omnipresence. They all have the ability to know everything, omniscience. They all are present everywhere. They are omnipresent. They equally share the divine nature, and yet they have distinct roles to play in our lives and in the world around us. Look at chapter 1 of John and verse 47. As we consider this word who was in the beginning with God and who became flesh, he comes to be called Jesus. And look at one of the first things that he does in chapter 1 of verse, in verse 47. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and he said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom is no deceit. And Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And Nathanael answered and said to him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. Now you say, no, what's the big deal here? Jesus saw a guy, and he says that he saw him, and this guy all of a sudden calls him God. Go back up to verse 43. The following day, Jesus wanted to go to Galilee, and he found Philip, and he said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Nathanael didn't just fall down and say, Oh, yeah, sure, let's go follow Jesus. Okay. Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. So Jesus isn't around when this is going on. 
And so they go to Jesus. And when Jesus sees Nathanael coming, he said, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom is no deceit. He knew he was a good and godly man. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus said, Before Philip called you, before Philip even went and told you about me, I could see you sitting under the fig tree. The fig tree would be a a tree with branches that would spread out, and of course in the hot sun of that part of the world, a person could sit down under the tree and meditate, rest. You know, who knows, he may have been even thinking about some of these truths from the Old Testament about the Messiah. He was a godly man. And he knew that the Messiah was not going to come out of Nazareth. He said, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? He knew the Messiah was not going to come from Nazareth. And Jesus said, I could see you. How could Jesus see Nathanael? Jesus could see Nathanael because Jesus has, or Jesus is, divine. He is God and man together. He was able to look with divine vision and see Nathanael when they were a some long distance apart. If we go on in the Gospel of John, and obviously we will in the weeks to come, but just to touch on two or three things that John tells us about, the next thing Jesus does after this thing we just read about Nathaniel is he goes to a wedding. And when they run out of wine, his mother says to him, they've run out of wine, as though he's going to do something about it. And he says, why are you talking to me? And she tells the servants, do whatever he says. And of course, you know the story, he gets the water pots full of water and he turns it into wine and it's the best wine they've ever had. And uh, we could go to John 4. He's talking to the Samaritan woman at the, uh, the well, at Jacob's well. He's sitting there talking to her and he looks right at her and basically tells her her life. And she goes running back to town and she says, Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. And he'd never met her before and knew anything about her. He was divine. In John chapter 5, he heals the disabled man at that pool of Bethesda. The man is sitting there saying, I I need somebody to help get me into the pool. And he says, do you want to be healed? And he says, yeah. He says, rise up and walk. And then John goes on from there to talk about other miracles that Jesus did. Look with me again at John chapter 1 verse 14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And what? And we beheld his glory. The Apostle John, who's writing this after all of these events are done, he's looking back, he's writing the life of Jesus. And what does he say? He says, the word became flesh and we saw his glory. We saw how great he was. And part of that is in reference to his divinity or to his divine nature, to his being God. Look at chapter 2, verse 11. Not that verse. Let's look at chapter 2, verse 11. This is the summary after the water and the wine miracle. This is this beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee, and he manifested or he made plain, he showed his glory, and his disciples believed him. This beginning of signs, a sign is a miracle. It's another word for a miracle in the Old Testament and the New. This beginning of signs he did and manifested his glory. So when we start here in John chapter 1 verse 14 and he says, The word became flesh and we saw his glory. 
Part of what John is telling us is this. Jesus, the Word of God come to earth, was divine in his nature. He was incredible. He was uh, something special. And we could see his divine nature. We could see the miracles. But then John also tells us about the humanity of Christ. He tells us about the humanity of Christ. In the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He lived among us. The word dwelt means to, to live temporarily. It's actually the word for tent. He tabernacled or he, 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 put a, he pitched his tent among us temporarily. It does not mean that Jesus temporarily lived in a human body. It means he temporarily lived on earth amongst human beings. The Gospel of John emphasizes the deity of Christ over and over and over. It talks about how he was God and it shows all these miracles that he did. But the other Gospels, in particular the Gospel of Luke, emphasize the humanity of Christ. In Luke chapter 1 and chapter 2, we have those traditional Christmas texts which tell about, G about Mary conceiving, being a virgin, the Holy Spirit came upon her and she conceived. But the child that came from her was very much human in his nature. In Luke chapter 2, we have the virgin birth. And then we have him raised by human parents, including the end of chapter 2, in which he runs off from them in Jerusalem as, a, as probably a 12-year-old boy. And he's in the temple, and he's interacting with the teachers in the temple. And his mom and dad come along and say, What in the world are you doing? We were scared to death. And they got him by the ear and said, you're coming with us. And, he, and the scripture says he was subject to them. Jesus did not live a miraculous existence. He lived a human existence. And at times during his ministry, he did miracles. He was fully human just as he was fully divine. In Luke chapter 4, we read about the temptation of Christ by Satan. And one of the key points of temptation came when after he had fasted for 40 days. Okay? I, I, I've never fasted for 40 days. I think 25 was the longest I went. <laughs> I've never fasted for one day. Okay? Jesus was fasting and it says he was hungry. And the devil came to him and said, turn the stones into bread. And Jesus said, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. Jesus was hungry. He was hard hungry. Because he was fully human and fully divine at the same time. In Luke chapter 22, we see Jesus agonizing both spiritually and physically over the coming crucifixion. He is in the Garden of Eden, the scripture says, sweating great drops of blood. He is he's saying, oh God, let this cup pass from me. He doesn't want to go through with the crucifixion. As a human being, he, he's, as God, he knows what's coming. He can see it coming. As a human being, he is looking at it saying, oh man, that's going to be the worst thing ever. He says, God, is there any other way? And then he, at the end of his prayer time, at his two hours of prayer, he says, Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. 
He did not want to go through with that terrible, terrible torture. In fact, Hebrews chapter 12 tells us that. He, 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 despised the cro- he hated the cross, despising the shame. He, he, it was not something, oh yeah, tomorrow I'm going to get crucified. We, we don't, I don't think we appreciate the humanity of Christ many times. In Luke 24, after the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, he's with his disciples. We see him eating food. I know that's a very simple statement, but we need to take note of it. Jesus had a full human body and a human nature. He ate, he slept, he got tired. John says, we beheld his glory. The word became flesh and we saw that God-man together. For three years, the disciples watched Jesus in physical fatigue and hunger. They watched him in frustration with people. He was frustrated with the the disciples or the apostles at times. They watched him have attacks on his character. You know, the Pharisees came along and said, "You're, you're doing miracles by the power of Satan. You know, guy called my dad Satan one time. Yeah, I mean, how would that feel? You've been attacked by people. They've accused you of lying. They've accused you of all kinds of things. The disciples saw Jesus attacked in the most vicious verbal ways possible. They saw him in pain and suffering on the cross. John stood there with Jesus' mother as Jesus was crucified. As he went through, as uh, uh, John was there when he was being uh, verbally um, attacked by the high priest at his trial. John was there watching him being crucified. He says, we beheld his glory. He saw the humanity of Christ. They saw him in all of these things, yet they saw him without sin. We'll look at a scripture about that in just a minute. They saw him not complain, not whine, not run away. They saw him never be selfish. One of the times when Jesus wanted to take the afternoon off, he said they'd been so busy, the scripture says they didn't even have time to eat. And he says, come on, let's, 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 go out, let's go out in the hills and just have a picnic, all of us together, all the disciples, and let's go. And when the people found out where he was going, they, they rushed to get there with him. And so what did he do? He ministered to them. He was never selfish. John says, the word became flesh, and we beheld his glory. We all have people that we hold in high regard. I I have some some other pastor friends that I know who I think are very good men, but none of them are perfect. But John says, we saw Jesus. We beheld his glory. The glory of the word made flesh. We need to understand this duality of Christ. He was fully God and fully man, together in a way that no other person ever was or ever will be. One author said this, He was and is the God-man, God-man, yet the divine and human in him were never confounded or mixed up. 
His deity, though veiled, was never laid aside. His humanity, though sinless, was a real humanity. That same author goes on to say, The incarnation does not mean that God dwelt in a man, but that God became man. He became what he was not previously, though he never ceased to be all that he was before. That's why we use the word incarnation, to be in flesh, to take on flesh. He was God and he took on a human nature. And now he is a single person with a dual nature. He, he, he will always have his human body in a glorified or perfected state, like ours will be someday. The dual nature of Christ, the, the dual nature of the Savior, was implicated in the Old Testament prophecies of the Messiah, or the Savior who was to come. The characteristics of God could have were seen in such prophecies as Isaiah 9.6. He's called the Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. You've read that scripture before. You've heard it quoted. It's talking about the Messiah to come. I don't know if the people in the day of Jesus who knew the Old Testament were, were really thinking about this and saying, you know what, if that's talking about the Messiah, he must be God. It cannot be just a human being who will be our Messiah. When Jesus came along and, and said, I and the Father are one, in other words, I'm of the same stuff that he is, they were going to stone him. They never even apparently understood the fact that the Messiah was going to have a divine nature. Micah 5.2 calls him one whose goings forth had been from the days of eternity. He's not just a person born in Bethlehem, but God who took on human flesh. And then in the Old Testament, there are also the characteristics of humanity. Like from Genesis 3.15, the first mention of the Savior in the Old Testament, when he's called the woman's seed. Seed is a reference to the, to the procreative process. In Deuteronomy 18.18, 18, he's called a prophet like unto Moses. Moses was clearly a human being and a prophet of God. In Isaiah 53.3, he's called a man of sorrows. So clearly in the Old Testament, this dual nature was, was spoken of. He's going to be God and he's going to be man. And here, when he comes to earth, we see this brought together in John 1.14. And we get the real feel of it if we start at verse 1 of John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory. Why was it necessary for Jesus to have this dual nature, God and man together? The first answer is this. Jesus was the God-man because or so that He could die. So that he could die. Listen to Hebrews chapter 2. Inasmuch then as the children, or the, 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 uh, the children of God, the, the people of God, have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil. 
and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. God says it was necessary for Jesus to share in flesh and blood in order to accomplish the mission of salvation. That's expounded for us in Hebrews chapter 9. But Christ came as the high priest of good things to come with the greater and more perfect dwelling place, that is, his body, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. That's why we understand that the Holy Spirit caused Mary to uh, become pregnant Uh, not a human man. Not with the blood of of goats and calves, but his own blood, he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, he's talking about the Old Testament time frame, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, How much more shall that cleanse your conscience or completely remake your person from dead works to serve the living God? And for this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant that those who are called may receive the promise of the internal inheritance. I need to stop right there and have you notice something. When Jesus Christ died, the sins under the first covenant, the old covenant, the Old Testament, when Jesus Christ died, the sins that had been covered by those sacrifices in the Old Testament were then forgiven. God was able to cover or atone for those sacrifices as he looked forward to the real sacrifice of Christ. And according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no remission or taking away of sin. Why was it necessary for the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, to take on a human flesh, to take on a human nature, to become human, so he could die? God said that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. God says the wages of sin is death. God said there's only one way to take care of sin, and that is with a blood sacrifice, and there's only one sacrifice good enough, and that is the perfect sacrifice. Jesus Christ became man so that he could die for our sins. Secondly, as we consider the dual nature of Christ, we understand this. Jesus Christ was both God and man, so he could understand us fully. Now, I, wanna, I, I struggle with how to word that point, because some of you are sitting there right now saying, are you telling me God cannot understand us fully? The struggle is the choice between the words of understand and perhaps understand by experience some things that could not be understood. The point could also be this. That, Jesus, that God is trying to make to us. It's not so much that he could not understand what we were going through, but that we would not believe he could understand what we are going through if Jesus did not suffer as we suffer, if he was not tempted as we are tempted. Hebrews 4 says this, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us, therefore, come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy to find grace and, 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 and to help in time of need. He says, look, you should, the, the point of this passage is this. When you are struggling, you should go to God in prayer because God 
really understands you. I don't know how you have been tempted in sin. I know how I'm tempted in sin. And I know that Jesus Christ was tempted in every way just like we are. Now I understand there's a difference between us and Christ. And the difference is he was not born with a sin nature. Because his father was the Holy Spirit. But you need to understand something about temptation. Temptation comes to you as a human being. Did Adam and Eve have a sin nature when they were created by God? No, they did not. They were human beings. And the devil himself came to tempt Eve and to whisper in her ear the same thoughts that the rest of the world is now whispering in our ear. And in her human nature, she had the capacity for pride. And Satan whispered in her ear, and she went, yeah, that does look good. And then she had a sin nature, which Romans 5 tells us that with Adam having a sin nature is passed on to all of us. But Jesus Christ had a full human nature. He was capable of being tempted. He was tempted in all points like us. And so when you are tempted, he understands that pressure. He understands that desire because he is fully human and fully God. He understands you better than anyone else. There's a, a song written many years ago. It's in our hymn book. No one understands like Jesus. He's a friend beyond compare. Meet him at the throne of mercy. He is waiting for you there. No one understands like Jesus when the days are dark and grim. No one is so near, so dear as Jesus. Cast your every care on Him. Jesus understands what you went through this week because He went through temptation. Jesus understands what it's like to live as a human being. That is part of why He came as a human being to become our Savior. He came to die. He came to understand us. And thirdly, he came to give us an example. For such a high priest was fitting for us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, from sinners. He came to give us an example. Hebrews chapter 12 says we ought to look to Jesus as the author and finisher of our faith. And the real command in those verses is not the looking to Jesus so much as it is laying aside the sin and every weight which easily slows us down on the, on the racetrack of the Christian life. The scripture says he was a good high priest for us. He was holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners. Can you live a righteous life with the power of Christ in you? Yes, you can. See, the, the, the marvelous thing that we, we understand here is this. We, we look at Christ and say, well, he was God in human flesh. Well, of course he wouldn't sin. 
When you accept Christ as your Savior, doesn't the power of God through the Holy Spirit come into your life? Or did I miss something in that passage of Scripture? Now, you don't become God. I understand that, and you should not think that. That's not what God tells us. It says we can partake in the nature of Christ. We get part of it. We get that righteous character. We get the power of the Holy Spirit so that we can live righteously. And so Christ rightly sets us an example of a righteous life in the midst of trial and temptation. He is a divine object lesson for us. He is God's way of saying, look, it can be done. You can do it. Christ did it. And I'm going to be in you helping you to do it. The Word became flesh and dwelled or lived among us and we saw His glory. We're going to stop at that part of this verse and pick this up next week as we continue on when we see the, the fullness and the grace of Christ. But I want to encourage you this week about this lesson that has been somewhat theological. And frankly, a good number of these, these sessions in John are going to be that way. This is a foundational truth in our faith. We, uh, not this house, but we saw a house recently that was advertised for sale for $150,000. It had, I think, four bedrooms and a huge lot. And, uh, thought, wow, what a great thing. Let's go look at this house, you know. We went and looked at it, and boy, it, it was as advertised. It, it just one little thing they left out. It doesn't have a foundation. It's got post and block, I believe is the term. You've got a cement post and a wood block on top of it holding the house up. So the house is kind of roly-poly. Foundation of a house is critically important. In fact, I don't think you can get a bank loan on a house that doesn't have a foundation. <laughs> because the bank thinks it's a bad risk. Folks, the person of Christ... And his dual nature is the foundation of your faith. If he was not divine, he was not the Savior. If he was not human, he was not the Savior. He had to be both of those. And he was. And he died for us. And he gave us an example. And he now can understand us and help us as we live our Christian life. I have a pamphlet here called The Spirit of Truth and the Spirit of Error. And one of the things that I would encourage you to understand as we think about this being a foundational doctrine in our faith is this. Every religion that is false maligns or hurts the doctrine of Christ. Here's what one says. Jesus is the human man and Christ is the divine idea. Here's what one says. Among the spirit children of Elohim, the firstborn was and is Jehovah, or Jesus Christ, to whom all of the other spirit children are juniors. So in other words, there's a whole bunch of people like Jesus Christ. 
Here's what another one says. As a man, Jesus was no different from us except for the fact that he was without original sin in his birth. Now, there's a whole bunch of other ones in there. Here's what I want you to understand, folks. You need to understand the doctrine of Christ because it is the foundation of our faith. He is our Savior. We need to understand Him as much as God allows us in His Word. I want to sing a song today as I conclude this sermon and encourage you to think about the Word who was made flesh. sacrifice our Lord Jesus Christ the word is wisdom the word is true the word takes all that's old and makes it new When hearts are broken, He makes them whole. The one who paid the price, our Lord Jesus Christ. The Word is calling time and again. The Word is grieving still for those in sin. Come now believing this Word is true. The cross speaks this advice, trust me, Jesus Christ. The Word is living, the Word is true, the Word takes all that's old and makes it new. This word is true, the one who paid the price, 
Jesus, thank you for paying for our sin. Thank you for leaving the glories of heaven, taking on a human body, becoming the God-man so that you could die, so that you could fully understand our challenges with sin and with, with the things of this life and so that you could give us an example. You could call us up to a righteous life. Father, may, be, may we be receiving of your word today. May we not hold Jesus out. May we not hold him at arm's length. May we receive your word, the communication you've given to us. And may he change our lives. I pray in his name. Amen. <clears throat>